Chapter 9 of the Oregon Trail. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter 9 Scenes at Fort Laramie. Looking back after the expiration of a year upon Fort Laramie and its inmates, they seem less like a reality than like some fanciful picture of the olden time, so different was the scene from any which this tamer side of the world can present. Tall Indians, enveloped in their white buffalo robes, were striding across the area, or reclining at full length on the low roofs of the buildings which enclosed it. Numerous squaws, gaily bedizened, sat grouped in front of the apartments they occupied. Their mongrel offspring, restless and vociferous, rambled in every direction through the fort, and the trappers, traders, and engagés of the establishment were busy at their labor or their amusements. We were met at the gate, but by no means cordially welcomed. Indeed, we seemed objects of some distrust and suspicion until Henry Chatillon explained that we were not traders, and we, in confirmation, handed to the bourgeois a letter of introduction from his principles. He took it, turned it upside down, and tried hard to read it. But his literary attainments not being adequate to the task, he applied for relief to the clerk, a sleek, smiling Frenchman named Montalon. The letter read, Bordeaux, the bourgeois, seemed gradually to awaken to a sense of what was expected of him. Though not deficient in hospitable intentions, he was wholly unaccustomed to act as a master of ceremonies. Discarding all formalities of reception, he did not honor us with a single word, but walked swiftly across the area, while we followed in some admiration to a railing and a flight of steps opposite the entrance. He signed to us that we had better fasten our horses to the railing. Then he walked up the steps, tramped along a rude balcony, and, kicking open a door, displayed a large room, rather more elaborately finished than a barn. For furniture it had a rough bedstead, but no bed, two chairs, a chest of drawers, a tin pail to hold water, and a board to cut tobacco upon. A brass crucifix hung on the wall, and close at hand a recent scalp with hair full a yard long was suspended from a nail. I shall again have occasion to mention this dismal trophy, its history being connected with that of our subsequent proceedings. This apartment, the best in Fort Laramie, was that usually occupied by the legitimate bourgeois Papin, in whose absence the command devolved upon Bordeaux. The latter, a stout, bluff little fellow, much inflated by a sense of his new authority, began to roar for buffalo robes. These being brought and spread upon the floor formed our beds, much better ones than we had of late been accustomed to. Our arrangements made, we stepped out to the balcony to take a more leisurely survey of the long-looked-for haven at which we had arrived at last. Beneath us was the square area surrounded by little rooms, or rather cells, which opened upon it. These were devoted to various purposes, but served chiefly for the accommodation of the men employed at the fort, or of the equally numerous squaws whom they were allowed to maintain in it. Opposite to us rose the blockhouse, above the gateway. It was adorned with a figure which even now haunts my memory, a horse at full speed, dabbed upon the boards with red paint, and exhibiting a degree of skill which might rival that displayed by the Indians in executing similar designs upon their robes and lodges. 
A busy scene was enacting in the area. The wagons of Vasquez, an old trader, were about to set out for a remote post in the mountains, and the Canadians were going through their preparations with all possible bustle, while here and there an Indian stood looking on with imperturbable gravity. Fort Laramie is one of the posts established by the American Fur Company, who well-nigh monopolized the Indian trade of this whole region. Here their officials rule with an absolute sway. The arm of the United States has little force, for when we were there the extreme outposts of her troops were about seven hundred miles to the eastward. The little fort is built of bricks dried in the sun, and externally is of an oblong form with bastions of clay in the form of ordinary blockhouses at two of the corners. The walls are about fifteen feet high and surmounted by a slender palisade. The roofs of the apartments within, which are built close against the walls, serve the purpose of a banquette. Within, the fort is divided by a partition. On one side is the square area surrounded by the storerooms, offices, and apartments of the inmates. On the other is the corral, a narrow place encompassed by the high clay walls, where at night, or in presence of dangerous Indians, the horses and mules of the fort are crowded for safekeeping. The main entrance has two gates, with an arched passage intervening. A little square window, quite high above the ground, opens laterally from an adjoining chamber into this passage, so that when the inner gate is closed and barred, a person without may still hold communication with those within through this narrow aperture. This obviates the necessity of admitting suspicious Indians for purposes of trading into the body of the fort for when danger is apprehended, the inner gate is shut fast, and all traffic is carried on by means of the little window. This precaution, though highly necessary at some of the company's posts, is now seldom resorted to at Fort Laramie, where, though men are frequently killed in its neighborhood, no apprehensions are now entertained of any general designs of hostility from the Indians. We did not long enjoy our new quarters undisturbed. The door was silently pushed open, and two eyeballs and a visage as black as night looked in upon us. Then a red arm and shoulder intruded themselves, and a tall Indian, gliding in, shook us by the hand, grunted his salutation, and sat down on the floor. Others followed, with faces of the natural hue, and letting fall their heavy robes from their shoulders, they took their seats, quite at ease, in a semicircle before us. The pipe was now to be lighted and passed round from one to another, and this was the only entertainment that at present they expected from us. These visitors were fathers, brothers, or other relatives of the squaws in the fort, where they were permitted to remain loitering about in perfect idleness. All those who smoked with us were men of standing and repute. Two or three others dropped in also, young fellows who neither by their years nor their exploits were entitled to rank with the old men and warriors, and who, abashed in the presence of their superiors, stood aloof, never withdrawing their eyes from us. Their cheeks were adorned with vermilion, their ears with pendants of shell and their necks with beads. Never yet having signalized themselves as hunters or performed the honorable exploit of killing a man, they were held in slight esteem and were diffident and bashful in proportion. Certain formidable inconveniences attended this influx of visitors. They were bent on inspecting everything in the room, 
our equipments and our dress alike underwent their scrutiny for though the contrary has been carelessly asserted few beings have more curiosity than indians in regard to subjects within their ordinary range of thought as to other matters indeed they seemed utterly indifferent they will not trouble themselves to inquire into what they cannot comprehend but are quite contented to place their hands over their mouths in token of wonder and exclaim that it is great medicine with this comprehensive solution an indian never is at a loss he never launches forth into speculation and conjecture his reason moves in its beaten track his soul is dormant and no exertions of the missionaries jesuit or puritan of the old world or of the new have as yet availed to rouse it as we were looking at sunset from the wall upon the wild and desolate plains that surround the fort we observed a cluster of strange objects like scaffolds rising in the distance against the red western sky they bore aloft some singular-looking burdens and at their foot glimmered something white like bones this was the place of sepulture of some dakota chiefs whose remains their people are fond of placing in the vicinity of the fort in the hope that they may thus be protected from violation at the hands of their enemies yet it has happened more than once and quite recently that war parties of the crow indians ranging through the country have thrown the bodies from the scaffolds and broken them to pieces amid the yells of the dakotas who remained pent up in the fort too few to defend the honored relics from insult the white objects upon the ground were buffalo skulls arranged in the mystic circle commonly seen at indian places of sepulture upon the prairie we soon discovered in the twilight a band of fifty or sixty horses approaching the fort these were the animals belonging to the establishment who having been sent out to feed under the care of armed guards in the meadows below were now being driven into the corral for the night a little gate opened into this enclosure by the side of it stood one of the guards an old canadian with grey bushy eyebrows and a dragoon pistol stuck into his belt while his comrade mounted on horseback his rifle laid across the saddle in front of him and his long hair blowing before his swarthy face rode at the rear of the disorderly troop urging them up the ascent in a moment the narrow corral was thronged with the half-wild horses kicking biting and crowding restlessly together the discordant jingling of a bell rung by a canadian in the area summoned us to supper this sumptuous repast was served on a rough table in one of the lower apartments of the fort and consisted of cakes of bread and dried buffalo meat an excellent thing for strengthening the teeth at this meal were seated the bourgeois and superior dignitaries of the establishment among whom henry chatillon was worthily included no sooner was it finished than the table was spread a second time the luxury of bread being now however omitted for the benefit of certain hunters and trappers of an inferior standing while the ordinary canadian engagés were regaled on dried meat in one of their lodging-rooms by way of illustrating the domestic economy of fort laramie it may not be amiss to introduce in this place a story current among the men when we were there there was an old man named pierre whose duty it was to bring the meat from the storeroom for the men. Old Pierre, in the kindness of his heart, used to select the fattest and the best pieces for his companions. 
This did not long escape the keen-eyed bourgeois, who was greatly disturbed at such improvidence, and cast about for some means to stop it. At last he hit on a plan that exactly suited him. At the side of the meat-room, and separated from it by a clay partition, was another compartment used for the storage of furs. It had no other communication with the fort except through a square hole in the partition, and of course it was perfectly dark. One evening the bourgeois, watching for a moment when no one observed him, dodged into the meat-room, clambered through the hole, and ensconced himself among the furs and buffalo robes. Soon after, old Pierre came in with his lantern, and, muttering to himself, began to pull over the bales of meat and select the best pieces as usual. But suddenly a hollow and sepulchral voice proceeded from the inner apartment. "'Pierre! Pierre! Let that fat meat alone! Take nothing but lean!' Pierre dropped his lantern and bolted out into the fort, screaming in an agony of terror that the devil was in the storeroom. But, tripping on the threshold, he pitched over upon the gravel and lay senseless, stunned by the fall. The Canadians ran out to the rescue. Some lifted the unlucky Pierre, and others, making an extempore crucifix out of two sticks, were proceeding to attack the devil in his stronghold, when the bourgeois with a crestfallen countenance appeared at the door. To add to the bourgeois' mortification, he was obliged to explain the whole stratagem to Pierre, in order to bring the latter to his senses. We were sitting on the following morning in the passageway between the gates, conversing with the traders Vasquez and May. These two men, together with our sleek friend, the clerk Montalon, were, I believe, the only persons then in the fort who could read and write. May was telling a curious story about the traveller Catlin, when an ugly diminutive Indian, wretchedly mounted, came up at a gallop and rode past us into the fort. On being questioned, he said that Smoke's village was close at hand. Accordingly, only a few minutes elapsed before the hills beyond the river were covered with a disorderly swarm of savages on horseback and on foot. May finished his story, and by that time the whole array had descended to Laramie Creek and commenced crossing it in a mass. I walked down to the bank. The stream is wide, and was then between three and four feet deep, with a very swift current. For several rods the water was alive with dogs, horses, and Indians. The long poles used in erecting the lodges are carried by the horses, being fastened by the heavier end, two or three on each side, to a rude sort of pack-saddle, while the other end drags on the ground. About a foot behind the horse, a kind of large basket or pannier is suspended between the poles, and firmly lashed in its place on the back of the horse are piled various articles of luggage. The basket also is well filled with domestic utensils, or, quite as often, with a litter of puppies, a brood of small children, or a superannuated old man. Numbers of these curious vehicles, called in the bastard language of the country travaux, were now splashing together through the stream. Among them swam countless dogs, often burdened with miniature travaux, and dashing forward on horseback through the throng came the superbly formed warriors, the slender figure of some lynx-eyed boy clinging fast behind them. 
the women sat perched on the pack-saddles, adding not a little to the load of the already overburdened horses. The confusion was prodigious. The dogs yelled and howled in chorus. The puppies in the travaux set up a dismal whine as the water invaded their comfortable retreat. The little black-eyed children, from one year of age upward, clung fast with both hands to the edge of their basket, and looked over in alarm at the water rushing so near them, sputtering and making wry mouths as it splashed against their faces. Some of the dogs, encumbered by their loads, were carried down by the current, yelping piteously, and the old squaws would rush into the water, seize their favorites by the neck, and drag them out. As each horse gained the bank, he scrambled up as he could. Stray horses and colts came among the rest, often breaking away at full speed through the crowd, followed by the old hag screaming after their fashion on all occasions of excitement. Buxom young squaws, blooming in all the charms of vermilion, stood here and there on the bank, holding aloft their master's lance as a signal to collect the scattered portions of his household. In a few moments the crowd melted away, each family with its horses and equipage filing off to the plain at the rear of the fort. And here, in the space of half an hour, arose sixty or seventy of their tapering lodges. Their horses were feeding by hundreds over the surrounding prairie, and their dogs were roaming everywhere. The fort was full of men, and the children were whooping and yelling incessantly under the walls. These newcomers were scarcely arrived when Bordeaux was running across the fort, shouting to his squaw to bring him his spyglass. The obedient Marie, the very model of a squaw, produced the instrument, and Bordeaux hurried with it up to the wall. Pointing it to the eastward, he exclaimed with an oath that the families were coming. But a few moments elapsed before the heavy caravan of the emigrant wagons could be seen, steadily advancing from the hills. They gained the river, and without turning or pausing, plunged in. They passed through, and slowly ascending the opposing bank, kept directly on their way past the fort and the Indian village, until, gaining a spot a quarter of a mile distant, they wheeled into a circle. For some time our tranquillity was undisturbed. The emigrants were preparing their encampment, but no sooner was this accomplished than Fort Laramie was fairly taken by storm. A crowd of broad-brimmed hats, thin visages, and staring eyes appeared suddenly at the gate. Tall, awkward men in brown homespun, women with cadaverous faces and long, lank figures came thronging in together, and, as if inspired by the very demon of curiosity, ransacked every nook and corner of the fort. Dismayed at this invasion, we withdrew in all speed to our chamber, vainly hoping that it might prove an inviolable sanctuary. The emigrants prosecuted their investigations with untiring vigor. They penetrated the rooms, or rather dens, inhabited by the astonished squaws. They explored the apartments of the men, and even that of Marie and the bourgeois. At last a numerous deputation appeared at our door, but were immediately expelled. Being totally devoid of any sense of delicacy or propriety, they seemed resolved to search every mystery to the bottom. Having at length satisfied their curiosity, they next proceeded to business. The men occupied themselves in procuring supplies for their onward journey, either buying them with money or giving in exchange superfluous articles of their own. 
The emigrants felt a violent prejudice against the French Indians, as they called the trappers and traders. They thought, and with some justice, that these men bore them no good will. Many of them were firmly persuaded that the French were instigating the Indians to attack and cut them off. On visiting the encampment, we were at once struck with the extraordinary perplexity and indecision that prevailed among the emigrants. They seemed like men totally out of their elements, bewildered and amazed like a troop of schoolboys lost in the woods. It was impossible to be long among them without being conscious of the high and bold spirit with which most of them were animated. But the forest is the home of the backwoodsman. On the remote prairie he is totally at a loss. He differs much from the genuine mountain man, the wild prairie hunter, as a Canadian voyageur paddling his canoe on the rapids of the Ottawa differs from an American sailor among the storms of Cape Horn. Still, my companion and I were somewhat at a loss to account for this perturbed state of mind. It could not be cowardice. These men were of the same stock with the volunteers of Monterey and Buena Vista. Yet for the most part they were the rudest and most ignorant of the frontier population. They knew absolutely nothing of the country and its inhabitants. They had already experienced much misfortune and apprehended more. They had seen nothing of mankind and had never put their own resources to the test. A full proportion of suspicion fell upon us. Being strangers, we were looked upon as enemies. Having occasion for a supply of lead and a few other necessary articles, we used to go over to the emigrant camps to obtain them. After some hesitation, some dubious glances, and fumbling of the hands in the pockets, the terms would be agreed upon, the price tendered, and the emigrant would go off to bring the article in question. After waiting until our patience gave out, we would go in search of him, and find him seated on the tongue of his wagon. "'Well, stranger,' he would observe as he saw us approach, "'I reckon I won't trade.' Some friend of his followed him from the scene of the bargain, and suggested in his ear that clearly we meant to cheat him, and he had better have nothing to do with us. This timorous mood of the emigrants was doubly unfortunate, as it exposed them to real danger.' Assume in the presence of Indians a bold bearing, self-confident yet vigilant, and you will find them tolerably safe neighbors. But your safety depends on the respect and fear you are able to inspire. If you betray timidity or indecision, you convert them from that moment into insidious and dangerous enemies. The Dakotas saw clearly enough the perturbation of the emigrants and instantly availed themselves of it. They became extremely insolent and exacting in their demands. It has become an established custom with them to go to the camp of every party as it arrives in succession at the fort, and demand a feast. Smoke's village had come with the express design, having made several days' journey with no other object than that of enjoying a cup of coffee and two or three biscuits. So the feast was demanded, and the emigrants dared not refuse it. One evening, about sunset, the village was deserted. We met old men, warriors, squaws, and children in gay attire trooping off to the encampment with faces of anticipation, and arriving here they seated themselves in a semicircle. Smoke occupied the center, with his warriors on either hand. The young men and boys next succeeded, and the squaws and children formed the horns of the crescent. The biscuit and coffee were most promptly dispatched, 
the emigrants staring open-mouthed at their savage guests. With each new emigrant party that arrived at Fort Laramie this scene was renewed, and every day the Indians grew more rapacious and presumptuous. One evening they broke to pieces out of mere wantonness the cups from which they had been feasted, and this so exasperated the emigrants that many of them seized their rifles and could scarcely be restrained from firing on the insolent mob of Indians. Before we left the country this dangerous spirit on the part of the Dakota had mounted to a yet higher pitch. They began openly to threaten the emigrants with destruction, and actually fired upon one or two parties of whites. A military force and military law are urgently called for in that perilous region, and unless troops are speedily stationed at Fort Laramie or elsewhere in the neighborhood, both the emigrants and other travelers will be exposed to most imminent risks. The Ogallala, the Brules, and other western bands of the Dakota are thorough savages, unchanged by any contact with civilization. Not one of them can speak a European tongue or has ever visited an American settlement. Until within a year or two, when the emigrants began to pass through their country on the way to Oregon, they had seen no whites except the handful employed about the fur company's posts. They esteemed them a wise people, inferior only to themselves, living in leather lodges like their own and subsisting on buffalo. But when the swarm of Meneaska, with their oxen and wagons, began to invade them, their astonishment was unbounded. They could scarcely believe that the earth contained such a multitude of white men. Their wonder is now giving way to indignation, and the result, unless vigilantly guarded against, may be lamentable in the extreme. But to glance at the interior of a lodge. Shaw and I used often to visit them. Indeed, we spent most of our evenings in the Indian village, Shaw's assumption of the medical character giving us a fair pretext. As a sample of the rest, I will describe one of these visits. The sun had just set, and the horses were driven into the corral. The prairie cock, a noted beau, came in at the gate with a bevy of young girls with whom he began to dance in the area, leading them round and round in a circle, while he jerked up from his chest a succession of monotonous sounds, and to which they kept time in a rueful chant. Outside the gate boys and young men were idly frolicking, and close by, looking grimly upon them, stood a warrior in his robe, with his face painted jet black, in token that he had lately taken a Pawnee scalp. Passing these, the tall dark lodges rose between us and the red western sky. We repaired at once to the lodge of Old Smoke himself. It was by no means better than the others. Indeed, it was rather shabby, for in this democratic community the chief never assumes superior state. Smoke sat cross-legged on a buffalo robe, and his grunt of salutation as we entered was unusually cordial, out of respect, no doubt, to Shaw's medical character. Seated around the lodge were several squaws, and an abundance of children. The complaint of Shaw's patients was, for the most part, a severe inflammation of the eyes occasioned by exposure to the sun, a species of disorder which he treated with some success. He had brought with him a homeopathic medicine chest, and was, I presume, the first who introduced that harmless system of treatment among the Ogallala. No sooner had a robe been spread at the head of the lodge for our accommodation, and we had seated ourselves upon it, than a patient made her appearance. The chief's daughter herself, who, to do her justice, was the best-looking girl in the village. 
being on excellent terms with the physician she placed herself readily under his hands and submitted with a good grace to his applications laughing in his face during the process for a squaw hardly knows how to smile this case dispatched another of a different kind succeeded a hideous emaciated old woman sat in the darkest corner of the lodge rocking to and fro with pain and hiding her eyes from the light by pressing the palms of her hands against her face at smoke's command she came forward very unwillingly and exhibited a pair of eyes that had nearly disappeared from excess of inflammation no sooner had the doctor fastened his grips upon her than she set up a dismal moaning and writhed so in his grasp that he lost all patience but being resolved to carry his point he succeeded at last in applying his favorite remedies it is strange he said when the operation was finished that i forgot to bring any spanish flies with me we must have something here to answer for a counter-irritant so in the absence of better he seized upon a red-hot brand from the fire and clapped it against the temple of the old squaw who set up an unearthly howl at which the rest of the family broke out into a laugh during these medical operations smoke's eldest squaw entered the lodge with the sort of stone mallet in her hand i had observed some time before a litter of well-grown black puppies comfortably nestled among some buffalo robes at one side but this newcomer speedily disturbed their enjoyment for seizing one of them by the hind paw she dragged him out and carrying him to the entrance of the lodge hammered him on the head till she killed him being quite conscious to what this preparation tended i looked through a hole in the back of the lodge to see the next steps of the process the squaw holding the puppy by the legs was swinging him to and fro through the blaze of a fire until the hair was singed off this done she unsheathed her knife and cut him into small pieces which she dropped into a kettle to boil in a few moments a large wooden dish was set before us filled with this delicate preparation we felt conscious of the honor a dog feast is the greatest compliment a dakota can offer to his guest and knowing that to refuse eating would be an affront we attacked the little dog and devoured him before the eyes of his unconscious parent smoke in the meantime was preparing his great pipe it was lighted when we had finished our repast and we passed it from one to another till the bowl was empty this done we took our leave without further ceremony knocked at the gate of the fort and after making ourselves known were admitted one morning about a week after reaching fort laramie we were holding our customary indian levee when a bustle in the area below announced a new arrival and looking down from our balcony i saw a familiar red beard and mustache in the gateway they belonged to the captain who with his party had just crossed the stream we met him on the stairs as he came up and congratulated him on the safe arrival of himself and his devoted companions but he remembered our treachery and was grave and dignified accordingly a tendency which increased as he observed on our part disposition to laugh at him after remaining an hour or two at the fort he rode away with his friends and we have heard nothing of him since as for r he kept carefully aloof it was but too evident that we had the unhappiness to have forfeited the kind regards of our london fellow-traveller chapter nine